and turn to Colossians chapter Colossians chapter 1, page 903, following along in a chair Bible there. We are doing a study in Colossians about living in reality, and we looked already at the reality of the Christian in verses 1 through 14, and then we've been looking at the reality of Christ in verses 14 through 23. He is preeminent. So let's go ahead and pray, ask his blessing on his word, and then look at this text together. Father God, we come as uh, hungry people ready to be fed by your word, and I pray that you would teach us where we need to turn from sin, teach us the greatness of Jesus and how we can trust him. And God, I know in this text we're going to talk about the security of the Christian in Christ. So I pray that today maybe there's someone here who is insecure in their eternal security as to whether or not they know for sure where they're going when they die. Perhaps that's because they have not yet placed their faith in Christ. Perhaps they're trying to trust something besides him for their salvation. But maybe they have trusted him and maybe it was when they were young and they're like, I just don't know if Christ, if I did it right. I pray that today you'd open their eyes to see if we are trusting in Christ, we are secure because Christ holds us. It's not we who hold on to him. So just from your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Music is a very important thing in most people's life. Perhaps you have already started listening to Christmas music, um, or I know that the radio station, actually, 105.3, they are now playing Christmas music already. But music has actually been said, here's our first quote from Martin Luther. He said, music is a fair and glorious gift of God. I am strongly persuaded that after theology, there is no art which can be placed on the level with music. Martin Luther thought very highly of music. Check out this quote here. This is from uh, the novelist Victor Hugo. He said, music expresses that which cannot be said and on that which is it is impossible to be silent. I like that. On that which is impossible to be silent. Philosopher Frederick Nietzsche said, without music, life would be a mistake. Doesn't that look like something some guy has plastered on his guitar or on his guitar case? Without music, life would be a mistake. The world has their list of songs that are instantly recognizable. Perhaps you would recognize the song Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. When that music comes on, you immediately recognize it. Or if you're a little bit younger, you might recognize that. That's what makes you beautiful by one direction that comes on and you're singing along. Pharrell Williams sings the song Happy. Or a little bit older one, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Anyone recognize that song? Here's one that's probably a little bit safer that you can admit. You ever heard the song, All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey? Exactly, that's what it does. That's exactly what it does. Popular songs, you can't help but sing along to them. If you're in the... Uh, in the Classic rock, Back in Black, or Thunderstruck by ACDC. You'll probably, whether you care to admit that you know those songs or not, know those. But in church, the music is very important in the church, isn't it? The church has songs that we love. We have Amazing Grace. I have yet to find someone who hates the song Amazing Grace. I have yet to find someone. And it's actually interesting, uh, into nursing homes, finding people who are far gone with dementia and you start singing Amazing Grace, boom. They're singing along with you. 
Hallelujah for the cross. Jesus loves me. Behold our God. And the list could go on. But do you know that there are scriptures that sing? And I would say this is a scripture that sings. Because as I've talked to people, I say, hey, I'm preaching through the book of Colossians. And their eyes light up and they go, I love Colossians. Colossians is awful. And I, or awesome. Not awful. Awesome. And I say, well, what do you love about Colossians? And they say, oh, I love chapter 3. No, 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 no. They don't say I love chapter 3. I love chapter 4. Nope, not chapter 4. What about chapter 2 with all the false prophets? Nope, they don't love that one. Chapter 1. When it exalts the greatness of Jesus Christ and their eyes light up and they're, that's so awesome. This is a text that sings. It, 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 is, it is like to me, we, we've been watching some Top Gear and it's interesting to watch these guys drive million dollar cars and then they drive along and they get to the top of a mountain and you know what they do? They stop their car, they turn it off, they sit on the car and they look at the landscape and they go, it's breathtaking. And I'm sitting here going, the image of God in man says there is something even more amazing about a landscape than a million dollar car. They're sitting on this car and saying God is more beautiful. And I think that there is a gospel landscape in this text that is simply breathtaking. We look in wonder and our only proper response is worship because we don't have words to describe the greatness of this text. Verses 15 through 23 is what we've been focusing on. And last week we looked at Jesus is preeminent. Preeminent just means he's first. He's first place. And he's preeminent in three ways. First of all, he is preeminent over creation. And that is he is before creation. He is first in time. It says he is before all things in our text. He is also above creation. He is first in power. He, is crea he has created creation, which means he's first in authority because it says all things were created through him and for him. And then he sustains creation. He is first in necessity. In him, all things hold together. So we got those next two points up there too. He created creation and he sustains creation. He's first in all those ways. So you look around, the world is held together by Jesus Christ actively involved in holding together our world not only that but it's fun when you when you span out and you think about the universe have you ever stopped to ponder the size of the universe and then read that verse all things are held together by him the galaxies are held together by jesus christ not just the creation and so he is first in all of those things. Point number two, Jesus is preeminent over the church. Verses 18 through 20 says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he's first over the church. And last week where we ended was, what does it look like for God to have first place in a church? What would you have to look for if you went to a church and said, I want to go to a church where Christ is the head? And there was three things that we came up with. For those of you who weren't here, yes, I am flying, but I preached on it last week. And I didn't make it through the whole sermon, so i got to keep moving. <laughs> we said there's three things, three characteristics of a church where Jesus Christ is actually present and in charge. First one is it's, it is first in grace. When you go to this church, you will find grace. Sinners find saving from their sin, not security in their sin in these churches. And so you hear stories about, I once was lost, I once was blind, but now I can see. Secondly, they, are, they have a priority. They're first in truth. A church where Jesus Christ is head does not apologize for the Bible. They don't get up and say, hey, the Bible says this, but I say this. Or, you know, Paul said this. Here's actually in, in scholarship. There are lots of people who don't like Paul. 
because he has a few things to say that are a little bit uncomfortable for us. And they say, well, Paul was just a chauvinistic pig. And so we're not going to really listen to what he says. Let's just go back to Jesus, and we're just going to look at the words in red. No, you won't find a church where Jesus' head only looking at the words in red. Because Jesus said the Old Testament was pointing to him. And then the third thing that we saw is that they are first in love. Love for God and love for others. Sunday school classes may be divided by age, but the church is not divided by age. And I encouraged you last week, young people, love the older people in this church. Go up to them, ask them questions, ask them about life, ask them what God has taught them. And the same is true for older people to look look down and talk to other younger people. And then this was cool because uh, we're studying love in Sunday school, and we made it through one point today. Sorry about that. <laughs> but we were studying about how church discipline, a, a loving church is a disciplining church, where we are willing to confront other people in their sin, but it's done in love. And we had a really, really good discussion, which is why we only got through one point. But we're going to look at environment number three where Jesus is preeminent. He is preeminent over the Christian. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is first over the Christian. Verse 19 says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. You notice there's one phrase that's not sitting there. Under the earth. That's a side study for you to do. There are things about things on earth, things above the earth, things under the earth, those things that are under the earth, specifically Satan and his demons and unbelievers who have died are not reconciled to God. But he says, reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which i paul have become a minister one commentator describes this section as the objective work of Christ for sinners. In other words, this has nothing to do with our works and everything to do with his. Letter A there in your notes is that he is first over your salvation. Paul moves into this idea of this is who Christ is, and he transitions it now to this is who you are in him. He is first over your salvation. It says that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This declares the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, and the fullness, which is a word the false teachers love to use, the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. Now, the word dwell means to, to come and to take up permanent residence. And I got to share this, uh, this message at the funeral home, not funeral home. Slice that from the record. <laughs> at the nursing home this week. Um, and I was talking with them, and what I have come to find out is in St. Ansgar, you are not part of St. Ansgar until you've been here for 30 years. Like, I've been here 10 years, and people who are St. Ansgarans, they're like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> Come back and talk to me in 10 years, and maybe we'll think that you're part of this. That's because this has the idea of to dwell permanently, and lots of times, small-town people, especially St. Ansgar, they're here. They were born here, and they're going to die here. That's her. 
<laughs> Spoken like a true St. Andrew. But you just moved right into my illustration. If you're in the military, you have no clue what this word dwell, dwell means. Because military people are constantly moving. They're, they constantly have to move to go from place to place to place. And what here it means is that God dwells permanently in Jesus. Jesus is God. There is a permanent residence there. So the reality is that in him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Next he says through him to reconcile all things to himself. And reconcile, you see a different definition down there, but it, it means to to change completely, to remove all enmity, or to exchange hostility for friendship. It implies a restitution to a state from which one has fallen. Now you have to know that in the Garden of Eden, and this, this is actually why I believe in a young earth, and I believe that when God comes back again, he will restore the earth. Because otherwise, it says here that in him to reconcile, to restore back to normal, things on earth what is he restoring it back to if we've had millions of years that have existed of death chaos disease and destruction so there are many people who try to they try to reconcile evolution with salvation with jesus christ but in that evolutionary process you have millions of years and you have death decay disease um and all those things and so i've always struggled with okay so what is god going to restore the earth to is he restoring it back to death, disease, decay? That does not sound like a great place to be. That's a side note. But he is going to reconcile these things. And in the Garden of Eden, all things were in harmony. The T-Rex didn't eat Adam and Eve. And, uh, and Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect fellowship with God. But sin entered, and what happened? There's a separation that needs to be reconciled. Every human born today is born as an enemy of God. Look at verse 21. He says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Watch it when someone says, I have always believed in Jesus Christ. Because they may have always mentally known about Jesus Christ, but the, the belief, the faith where we are saved, by which we are saved, is not something you can always have. Because scripture here says, at one time, we were alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul says earlier in Ephesians that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So we can't have always known God. And we looked at it in Romans chapter 5, 6 through 11, that while we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, look at this, it says, while we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, go to the next slide, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death. And that's why as a church we believe you must be born again. Because you're an enemy of God. I'm an enemy of God. And so Christ reconciles us. That, that leads us to our condition. So a sub-point there. Our condition is an enemy of God. Verse 21 says, you were hostile in mind. One of the... <laughs> I, I depends on the funeral, <laughs> but one of the joys of doing of being a pastor is getting to do funerals. And precious in the Lord is the death of His saints. But I remember getting asked to do a funeral for a person who never went to church. None of the family ever went to church, and uh, someone just knew me. It was just a, a really small connection. They said, "Hey, would you do this service?" It's like, sure. 
And so I'm going in it going, I have no clue how many people are believers here. How many have even heard the gospel? How many know Christ? And so I was, I was outnumbered, to say the least. And I remember getting there early, greeting the family, talking to the family. And behind me is one of the family members talking very loudly about how they hate pastors who come in and pretend like they know everything about heaven, hell, death, and eternal life. And he's like talking really loudly like he's trying to get me to listen. And I thought, wow, this is a great warm-up. <laughs> so I got up to preach this message and of course i was going to present the gospel that you know your loved one has passed away if your loved one could come back what they want you to know is heaven is real and that jesus christ he is true because if they're in hell they want you to know it and if they're in heaven they're going whoa this is awesome like don't worry about the things down here it's gonna be okay you know so either way they want you to know i stood up i have never been in such a hostile environment I mean, it was like death stares as, as I began to preach and open the Word of God. Like, what do you got, little preacher boy? I got a little bit of dry mouth that day. But what's interesting is, the Bible says, that was all of our condition prior to knowing Christ. I was saved at four. Do you know what I was before I was saved? An enemy of God. If you were saved at 13, do you know what you were before? An enemy of God. 18, 19, 50, 30, whatever your age was, you and I, our condition was an enemy of God. And you notice it says in mind. One of the hard things about pastoring is it is very possible that you could be sitting here as a hostile in mind to God, but outwardly conforming to an okay standard. In mind, you're rebelling against everything God says. You're doing evil deeds, but you can dress up and come to church. Which is why I'm glad that God is the one who works on the heart, and I don't have to know every heart. The heart is deceitful. I just trust God to do the work through his word. And I may be speaking to a man here today who is hostile in mind against God. He has set up other idols, and in the silence of his mind, he hates God. Or there may be a woman or a young person who is doing evil deeds. Yeah, you can sit in church and act like a good little Christian, but your deeds give you away. But hallelujah, when I stop and realize that this was my condition prior to coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, my Savior, was hostile in mind. I don't say to you who are hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, stop your hostility and stop your doing, doing your evil deeds. What I say is, don't, I don't, don't tell you to crawl on your hands and knees because God is your enemy. No, I say come to Christ because through his blood shed on the cross, you can receive friendship with God. It says here he's making peace, and it's a participle. That means peace is more than an end to hostilities. It's a positive content pointing to the presence of a positive blessing concerning us. So our condition was an enemy. Let's look at his provision. His provision is friendship. To reconcile means to restore to friendship. There's your quote from Wearsby, the permanent bringing together of the believing sinner and God through Jesus Christ. And I want you who are believers to look at that word permanent. You do not lose your salvation. You cannot at one time be a friend of God and then never and then fall out of friendship. You are a permanently brought together the believing sinner and God through Jesus Christ. Not through works of righteousness that we have done. 
but according to his mercy, he saved us. Now, I got to see this uh, illustrated. I think I've told this story a few times. When I was um, 12 years old at junior boys camp over at IRBC, there was a fun game. Junior boys can be a little bit vicious sometimes. They're also tons of fun. You always know exactly where you stand with junior boys. And actually, it's, it's fun preaching to junior boys. It's my favorite group of people to preach to, and I'll tell you why. Because here, most of you are adults, and you're nice, and you try to listen even if you're not listening. Like, that's just, we, we kind of do that as adults. You know, it's like, okay, I should, I should be listening. Junior boys, if they're not listening, you know it. And I was preaching one time, and this kid, it was towards the end of the week. He sits down, and I look, and he's just like, I mean, like, mouth wide open, just about to snort. But we're at junior boys camp. Me and my friend are there, and uh, a kid comes up to us. We're standing in line for food, and he says, hey, do you know if your hand's bigger than your face, you have cancer? Okay. I'm homeschooled. I have no clue what's happening and what's coming. And uh, so he sticks his hand up next to his face. My friend does. And two of the kids in line in front of us, one takes out a fist and just punches him as hard as he can. And the other kid just smacks his hand as hard as he can. So, you know, stick your hand up here. They smack you. You hit your face. It was funny and all until blood started shooting out of his nose. And my friend was a full-blown alcoholic by 14. So he had already started at 12, and he was a fighter. And he took back, and he swung at this kid. And I'm glad the kid ducked, or he would have been knocked out cold. And he was furious. But I remember later in the week, one kid came up to him and said, Dude, it was so wrong what I did. I'm really sorry. And uh, I know that you got blood on your only nice pants. Will you please forgive me? And they were reconciled. And you know, the rest of the week, you'd see them together, hanging out. Once an enemy. You know what the other kid did? Nothing. Guess how my friend felt towards him for the rest of the week. <laughs> I'll clean your clock. You know, <laughs> what had to happen had to be a recognition of sin and a forgiveness of sin. And then there's reconciliation. In Christ, when we recognize we, we are sinful and we come to him, we are reconciled to God and there's friendship. Those who do not come through Christ remain as enemies of God. Reconciliation is a big deal. It's a huge deal. I have a longer quote for you. I don't think it's up on the screen, but J. Vernon McGee says this, many people have the idea that man must do something to win God over to him. My friend, God is trying to win you over. The shoe is on the other foot. God is reconciled, and he's asking him to be reconciled to him. God is not a disagreeable neighbor who is sitting around the corner and find fault with him. God has his arms outstretched and is saying, come, and I will give you redemption rest. Having made peace through the blood of his cross means that by his paying the penalty on the cross for your sin and my sin, peace has been made between God and the sinner. God does not approach man today and say to him, Look here, fellow, I'm against you. You have been rebelling against me. You're a sinner, and I'm forced to punish you for that. No, God is saying something entirely different to the lost sinner today. He says to you and to me, I have already borne the punishment. I have already paid the penalty for all your sin. I want you to know that you can come to me. Peace has already been made in Christ Jesus if you will turn and come to me. 
So Jesus is first of our salvation. Letter B, Jesus is first over your security. He is first over your security. Probably the number one thing that I counsel believers with is, how can I know for sure that I'm saved? I mean, that's like the number one question I get. And if you hear in this text, see in this text, it says, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which Paul has become, I, Paul, have become a minister. So I see, first of all, that you are presently secure in him. Here's a, a sub-point there. You're presently secure in Christ. In our text, we're told that if, if we continue in Christ, and really it's better translated since, since you will continue in Christ, trust God that you are secure in him. Those really, really big difference. I just think about um, in Scripture. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 51, verse 6. It says, lift up your eyes to the sky, then look at the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be for how long? Forever. My righteousness will not wane. When will God's salvation not be enough to save the sinner? It will never, ever not be enough. It will always be enough to save the sinner. And so Jesus says the security of the saint is in the security of Christ. And I even think of that old song. Well, actually, turn your Bibles. You ready? You got fingers ready? Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Because I want to make the argument here that your security is guaranteed if you're in Christ because God is the one working to keep you secure. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is page 980-980 in your chair Bible. It says there in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure. Some of your translations may say, I am convinced of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who is it that began your salvation? Christ did. Who is it that completes it? Christ will. Look over at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Back a couple of pages. Page 973. Follow along in chapter there. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians is a book written to the legalists who are trying to look at how they behave as their defining factor between them and God. And Paul says, You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? That's an interesting word around Halloween time. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The implication is, how? By the hearing of faith. It says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? No, we're not perfected in the flesh. And I, one of my big burdens and passions is for you to be equipped to disciple others. And I want you to know, if you begin to pour into the lives of other people, they're going to have this question. How can I know for sure that I'm saved? And one of the things that you're going to want to run to first is, well, is the evidence of your salvation. And it is good because a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Evidence is important. We look for evidence, but make sure you start with who have you trusted for your eternal security. 
Start there. Look at these verses and say, who is it that holds you eternally secure? It's Christ. Because, go back to Colossians. What we can inadvertently do when we run, when, when someone says, how do I know I'm saved? And we run straight to works or evidence of faith is we can shift from the hope of the gospel, which is exactly what they were in danger of doing. It says in verse 22, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. There's only one hope for the Christian. <laughs> There's only one faith for the Christian. It's Jesus Christ. It's not me. And so we have to go back to the faith and the hope, which is Jesus Christ. And when you talk to people, have these verses in your mind. Write them down. Have them for yourself. Have them memorized so you can say, look, our hope is in Jesus Christ. So you're presently secure in Him. I think of Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 through 23. The Lord's loving kindness Indeed, it never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And it brought back to mind um, the old hymn. You remember that song? God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but fail. Anything but fail. He can save. He can keep. And he will. God can do anything but fail. So, Another subpoint, if you would, is you will be you will be secure in Him, without blemish. Translates from a sacrificial term, and it was used of animals that were without flaw and therefore were worthy of being offered to God. And what what this says here is that one day you and I are going to stand before God, and Christ is going to present us perfect if you are trusting Christ. So just think with me what that scene might look like. Do you remember what Satan is called? The accuser of the brother. Let's just, in our imagination, go to heaven for a minute, okay? And here, here stands Pastor Aaron. And Satan says, do you know how many sermons he preached for himself? And Jesus says, covered by the blood of Christ. And Satan says, do you know what he's done and what his thought life has been like sometimes? And, Satan says, and Jesus says, covered by the blood of Christ. And do you know, and Satan just throws accusation after accusation after accusation, all of them true. And I sit there and I go, yes, I remember that. Yes, I remember that. Yes, I remember that. And Christ says, blameless, holy, because he's in me. And then I move on and you come up. My brother told me I yell too much when I'm preaching. It's hard to hear on the podcast. Sorry, Daniel. Anyway. Get excited about this stuff, and Ken comes up next. And Satan says, do you know what Ken has done? And Ken goes, I know what I've done. And he starts naming Ken's sins, and he, and he goes down this list of sins and all the things he's done. And Jesus Christ says, blameless in the blood of Christ. And, and Ken moves on, and, he's, and Satan's like, I'm going to get his son. John comes up. And Satan starts going down the list of all the sins John's done, all the sins of thought, all the sins of action, all the sins of his words. And Jesus says, sorry, this one's holy and blameless too. Ah! I almost want to be Pentecostal after that. And that's you, Christian. So don't look to yourself. 
Look to Christ because he's the one that's going to present you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine with me the terror of standing before God and Satan accusing you and you can only defend yourself? Satan throws out a sin that you've done and says, answer for this. Did you do that? And you say, yes, guilty. Throws out another one. Yes, guilty. Throws out another one. Yes, guilty. Throws out another one. That is why our hearts should be burdened for unbelievers. Because when they stand before God, they have themselves. And they'll say, well, well, I did this good work. And God's like, you still have to give an account for your sin. But for the believer, you will be secure in him. This is, this is crazy. Unreprovable means unaccusable or unchargeable. God is the one who justifies. And if God declares us to be justified, there is no charge that can stand against us. Nothing. Even though you're a sinner. Let me give you, and I would actually encourage you to write this down. Because I would say that this is a rock. This truth that Christ is the one who justifies us is a rock. And I want you to do three things with it. So I'm going to have three points here. They're not in your notes. But it's on this rock, I should blank. Okay, so on this rock, I should put my hope. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. On this rock, I should put my hope. On the rock of Jesus Christ, you should put your hope. And I'm calling you to put your hope on the rock of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, page 957. Reflects back to the time of Israel in the wilderness. And he says, all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. This rock was Christ. I love that. I love it. He's like, this rock is Christ in the wilderness. What, what kept Israel alive? Christ. Kept him alive in the wilderness. On this rock, you should put your hope, the rock of Christ. Secondly, on this rock, you should build your life. I should build my life. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you're like, well, I don't have to turn there. I have it memorized. Because a good old Sunday school teacher taught me, the wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rains came tumbling down. Matthew 7, on this rock, on the hope of Jesus, you should build your life. And what that will look like is obedience. And be, be understand that this will lead us to desire Christ. And Paul will talk about that later in the passage. But on this rock, you should build your life. Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. The rain, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. So it's everyone who hears the words of Christ and does them. Then thirdly, on this rock, the church was built. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus turns to Peter and says, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Some think that that is referring to Peter, but let me give you a, another option that I think is worth considering. In, in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, you know, you're Peter, on this rock I will build my church. But jump back to verse 15 when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. Could it be that that profession is the rock on which God built his church? What does every single believer from 
Pentecost until forever believe about Christ, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And on this rock, <laughs> St. Ansgar Baptist Church is built. So we turn back to Colossians. Let's wrap it up here. I see in the closing verses that the gospel was heard. So historical power. It is for everyone. It has universal power. And that it is so powerful that Paul actually submits to it. And so he trusts in Christ. And so let me share a story with you. I once heard a story of two men who were canoeing down a river. And their canoe capsized. Knowing that a waterfall was nearby, they immediately began to grab for anything within reach that they could get a hold of. One grabbed a hold to the canoe, and one grabbed a hold to a stick that was connected and reaching out in the bank. One of them perished, and one of them survived. Today, it says in Scripture, broad is the way that leads to death. Many there be that find it. And there are different canoes that people hold on to all the time for their salvation. They hold on to the canoe of good works. They hold on to the canoe of, I, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Presbyterian, or whatever it is. They hold on to a church title. There is only one thing that will save you from hell, and it's Jesus Christ. He alone can save you. And so I ask you to seriously consider, what are you holding on to? Because... And I hear this more and more from people as they age. Death is something you start to think about a little bit more as the years pass on. And maybe you're young, like Chase or Ashton or Raymond or Eli. Probably don't think about death all that much. But it's coming. And there's something we have to hold on to. Will it be Christ or will it be something that we have? Jesus reconciled us in his body of flesh. And so when we stand before him, he'll be the judge, jury, and defense attorney. And as we are held together by laminin, which we talked about last week, so the cross of Christ holds the believer together with God in an unshakable, unimpeachable, undeniable bond. So if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So I want you to think through a couple of application questions. They're there in your bulletin. But just take these home with you. Um, consider them. Maybe if you're going home and you have a family meal together, discuss them. Or if you have a long car drive with other college students, uh, discuss some of these, these questions. Because I think that they're helpful for us to wrestle through. Verse 21, what does it say to those who claim that they have always believed in Jesus? You'll find that a lot. The more you begin to witness, the more you'll hear people say, I've always believed in Jesus. If you turn verses 15 through 23 into a song, what would the chorus be? Think about that. What, what, what would be your refrain that you keep coming back to? Then obviously the most important question is, have you been reconciled to God? Have you been made right with God? And then I like this one. This is the one that personally challenged me. How might God being your friend affect your prayer life? Do you pray to God as your friend? He is all-powerful. He is incredible. He can do amazing things, but do you pray to him as friend? Father, the greatness of Jesus, we got to see last week in his preeminence, and we're so thankful we got to finish studying that this week. And so as we go to Thanksgiving, 
May he be ever more preeminent in our lives. Thank you for the security that is in Christ. And God, I pray for the us believers that we would walk secure in Christ because we won't witness if we're not secure in Christ. We won't be telling others if we're unsure ourselves. And so I pray that today, maybe there's a, a believer in here who has just been strengthened. And they say, okay, yeah, I can witness to someone else. Because it doesn't have to worry about me having my life perfectly in order. I can tell others the gospel. I can share the gospel with other people. But Lord, maybe there's someone here today who, in our study, they, they realize, hey, I'm not reconciled to God. May they call out. It says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. May they turn their trust from whatever they're trusting in right now to I want to call out to Christ. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I trust that Christ died for me, that he rose again, and that he ever lives to make intercession. Jesus, thank you for your wonderful gift that you'll present as holy and blameless. I thank you that I get to enjoy pastoring this church. Yet, for eternity, we will get to enjoy you together as reconciled believers all on the same plane because Christ is the one that reconciles us. So even as we close with the song, lift our hearts to praise. May this week be a week where we thank you for what you've given us, but also thank you for the spiritual gifts that you blessed us with. In Jesus' name, amen.